This episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. No credit card required. Enter the offer code SUPERTRAIN at checkout to get 10% off Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Oh, well, it's a little crazy out there, actually. What's up? Oh, I just recommend that you not go out today. I don't think you should. I think you should stay. Stay in. That's probably good advice everywhere. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I feel like a lot of people were making left hand turns from the right hand lane today, if you know what I'm saying. And it just felt like, boy, don't uh, don't don't make any unnecessary trips, as the state troopers say. Hmm. Yeah. I, never, yeah. I never heard that advice. That's okay. Oh, really? Was that from uh, the war? No, no, no. That's very common state trooper advice. Don't make any unnecessary trips today. Uh, yeah, they, but I mean, in my parlance, that's kind of letting the guy with the broom decide how many elephants can be in the parade. It just makes his job easy. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, I mean, sir, I'd have to advise you not to use your car as much. That kind of puts a puts a bit of a burden on us in the law enforcement community. <laughs> I, I had I had that exact experience one time where the state trooper was standing at a roadblock. And I drove up to it, and he said, road's closed. And I said, really? And he said, well, I mean, you can go if you want. What? <laughs> and I said, well, all right, I will. And he was like, it's on you. It's more of like a serving suggestion. <laughs> no, I think he was like, road's closed, and everybody turned around. But, <laughs> meet, but, meet Lou, the passive-aggressive <laughs> state trooper. <laughs> Whatever. But, but, you know, he was... He wasn't a he didn't have a hundred percent conviction, and uh, and I was like, well, fuck it. I never saw a road that was so closed that that I wouldn't take a shot at it. I think it was Dale Carnegie said that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went. It was a hairy ride, I'll tell you. But it was mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't closed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think it, you know I, I'm not I don't like to drive. I don't drive if I can avoid it. But uh, I, I've always lived in fear of that thing where. The cop asks you where you're going oh. and with the implicit question of, of like why you're going where you're going. Uh-huh. And I realize it's part of this bigger uh, existential anxiety for me, which is I don't have like one particularly good reason for anything that I do. Mm. And I don't like I don't like being asked about that. Now, it's easy enough when people say like, why, why didn't you buy this phone? It's like, well, first of all, who cares? And second of all, that's a weird question. Yeah. But like when a cop asks you why you're going where you're going, that, that that's like a crisis of confidence and doubt for me. Because now I'm like, <laughs> do I really need to be doing this? Should I be doing this? I, mean, I don't you know what? I thought I knew why I was doing this. And now I feel kind of bad that I'm even here and wasting your time. Right. Because, you know, part of, oh, why am I doing this? Well, I'm doing this. Well, what? I'm going to going to go visit my family. Do I want to do that? No, I'm not. Not completely. I mean, why am I doing that? I'm doing it out of uh, familial obligation. Like, why, why, are you, why are you here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, see, that's exactly my answer to that question. I mean, when somebody says, where are you going? Why are you going there? I always say, why do any of us do anything? Right? Yeah. It's a version of that same thing, except it's, except it's said from a prospect. Said from a position of like, why are you doing what you're doing? Oh boy, that's just the kind of thing a cop doesn't want to hear. <laughs> oh no, no, but you know, but that that's a potential. It's a potential moment for you guys to really bond over the fact that oh, you know what? Well, what, why do any of us do anything? I, um, it's it seems like one of those questions when they're giving you a polygraph test. Before they get to the like, uh, did you kill Nicole Brown Simpson questions? They have to ask you, you know, it, it, what is your name? You know. 
right. Orenthal, James Simpson. Like you've got to ask the like baseline questions and see right. how you react to those before they can look for the spikes. By the way, he got a negative twenty four on that. It was very upsetting to John Travolta in the movie. <laughs> um, but but you know what I mean. And so like I think when there there's a lot of things where like you ask somebody a question not to get an answer but to see how they react to the question. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what a cop is doing. I think they're trained to do that. They don't actually care why you're driving, but they want to see if you're up to some monkey business. Yeah, well, I remember getting pulled over by a cop one night, and uh, I had a guy in the back of the car who was a former army veteran, fought in the old, uh, f- fought in the famous Panama War, if you recall the the uh, Noriega, the Noriega War, where they where they parked out Play, in front of the, the music <laughs> embassy and played the heavy metal music. He fought in that war, and it but it was a genuine war. Army people uh, shot at other people and and succeeded in their mission of shooting other people. And so he was a, a really big guy and an army guy, and it, that was before we had the term for this kind of um, libertarian, anti-authoritarian, take over a wildlife refuge style anti-government person. Mm-hmm. But he was certainly uh, anti-authoritarian. And so I got pulled over by this cop for going 50 and a 30 or something like that. And he immediately gets, you can just hear him behind me, just in this body, body English of like, all right, I'm not taking any, you know, we're not taking any shit off of this. And it wasn't that he wasn't going to take any shit. It was that he was communicating to the car that we weren't going to take any well, shit. Well, in a larger way, no shit would be taken. No shit is going to be taken here. This cop, you know, barely has the authority to pull us over. And so the cop walks up and he's like, uh, so, and it's in the middle of the night, you know, it's like one of those, it's a little bit fraught already. The cop walks up and I'm sure he sees this six foot five bald army guy staring straight ahead with his jaw clenched in the back seat. I'm sure he sees him before he even sees me. And he comes up to me and he's like, sir, do you know why I pulled you over? And I was like, yeah, I was going 50 and a 30. And the guy behind me loses his mind. You can hear him like, <laughs> Like you, you gave too much away. Like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Name, rank, and serial number. And the cop was like, "Yeah, that's right." And I was like, "Yeah, sorry. It was there's nobody on the road, and I was just driving. I mean, it's not like I was going fifty in a thirty, and there were like school buses on the street. It's two in the morning." And the cop said, "All right, sir. Uh, you know, give me your license and registration, and you know, sit tight." And goes back to his car, and I and the. And my buddy just gives me the ultimate dressing down. What the fuck are you doing, man? Jesus, you just... And, uh, you know, five minutes later, the cop comes back and he's like, all right, well, slow it down out there. Hands me my license and registration. I'm like, yeah, see? The cop, you know, he's not an asshole. He's not an idiot. Yeah. There's nobody else on the highway. You just you just be up front with people. I, um... Uh, I get I, off of tickets all the time, and it's largely white privilege. Well, but it, oh no, that's a big part of it. I just there's a thing. There's a thing. Like cops do a really hard job, and it's really hard. It's hard, difficult, and dangerous work. But but it's just it's so. No matter how old I get, I still think it's weird that anybody wants to be a cop, and I'm still suspicious of anybody who wants to be a cop. And I know that's wrong. I know I'm cer- I'm certain that there are people who are genuine uh, sociopathic bullies. Who specifically with a Napoleon complex, who in particular become cops just so they can be bossy. Mm-hmm. I don't doubt that for a second, but there are a lot of good people. But the job is so weird. I mean, the actual job, you think about the job, like think about in your case, like if somebody, you're in a position where if somebody says to you, uh, hey, John, 
like, I'll give you like $50 to come to Boston for an hour. And you are in a position to go like, oh, you know, that's not really a good deal for me. And like, I wouldn't want to do that. Whereas if somebody else says, I'm going to get $50,000 to like do something in your own backyard, you'd say, yeah, 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 I'll do that. Because you can weigh like whether that's a good use of your time. This happens to me all the time. All the time, both directions, you're constantly fielding offers. But when you're a cop, it just seems like there's so much stuff that basically just comes down to time and paperwork. And in that case, like, why did he, why did he really pull you over? Like, was, did he pull, and if he pulled you over, do you follow where I'm going with this? Oh, yeah, like, yeah. His, what a weird job to have to pull somebody over, check their information, and not give a ticket. Like, okay, so was he just looking for, <laughs> was he working off the books for people who, like, were, had drugs in their car or something? Mm-hmm. Was that part of his assignment? Was his assignment to get more tickets? Like, what was his job? What, what part of his job was he doing when he pulled you over and did he succeed at it? Yeah. And I yeah. can't I can't answer that question without without rolling through this whole array of motivations for why you would be a cop in the first place and what their actual role is in society because I I honestly can't tell you I bet you five different people there's five different reasons why they want to pull somebody over because it is based on their intuition right uh well or a speed th- gun yeah a speed gun I mean you know he he's on he's on speed trap duty or whatever but I think it's also it's two o'clock in the morning he's driving around he's that's his job to be out. And so he's looking around, and I think the best cops understand that they are agents of the state and that we all agree on laws and that those laws need to be enforced, and the state enforces them for a variety of reasons, and the way they do that is through the police. And so the worst cops think that they are personally charged with a, with a personal authority to be out there busting bad guys. Like those, that's just the wrong motivation. Almost you know? like a crusader. Yeah, right. I mean, the guys that think that they have some superior ability to handle situations and to get in there and, and you know, deal with people, deal with, you know, the bad guys. Like those guys should, I don't know what they should do. They should become trainers, you know? Uh, but But the best cops understand that, like, we need police because the state makes laws that benefit us all. And then we have to enforce those laws because a lot of people are going to, you know, a lot of people are going to say that doesn't apply to me, myself included. And so, yeah, the, the cops are out there and they're like, okay, I'm, I, pulled the, I pulled the 1 a.m. to 8 a.m. shift and I'm out here enforcing the laws. And if I see a guy driving 50 in a 30 whose car is on fire and he's on top of it wearing a toga and waving a scimitar, I'm definitely pulling him over mm-hmm. because – he There's appears, probably something going on. He appears to be a danger <laughs> to everyone. Well, you know, also just basics where there's, you know, smoke, there's fire. Or better still, where there's fire, there's a car on fire, and that's probably something you should get off the road. That's exactly right. But that's like he, getting to the scimitar. He's driving along, and he sees a, guy, he sees a car full of guys uh, uh, who look like uh, former Army Rangers, and they're going too fast. And that's really the only thing that's going on right now. He's looking around. He wishes a, a space alien would come down and give him something exciting to do. But that's the only thing that's going on. And so he's like, all right, I'm going to pull these guys over. And he checks your ID and he, he puts it into the computer. He's like, all right, nobody. And I think he took everybody's ID, frankly, if I remember correctly. Okay. okay. Uh, you know, and, and everybody was fine. And it was like, this is fine. This is just a normal situation. And that's why I say, yeah, I was speeding. I... I Honestly, uh, and I, you know, I'm not flipping him attitude like, seriously, dude, 
It's just like, yeah, I'm, I understand why you pulled me over, but also, do you understand why I'm going 50 and a 30? And he does. And so, so he, perce- he sees himself and his job correctly, which is like, I'm out here because people want me out here. And when I encounter a situation, I can use my good judgment and say, move along. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's just those bad cops that, and, and the thing is a lot, the bad cops are always the ones that don't see themselves as bad because they're the ones out there breaking knees and chasing bad, chasing guys in hoodies and making the world safe, you know? And that's just, that seems, that's, that seems like a stereotype that must have its factual, um, you know, examples in life. You, I mean, as much as that's a stereotype, that must happen. I'm talking about like in his case, like, and, and this is why I struggle to understand like what it's like to be a, you know, what, 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 not a beat cop, but like, a, you know, a lower level police officer, not a detective, not somebody who's charged with saying, look, we need you to use your intuition and to use these various kinds of, you know, known data to make decisions about how to proceed with this, right? Yeah. More of a knowledge work kind of job, which was, I'm not saying it's not, again, I'm not saying it's not difficult. I'm not saying it's not, you don't have to be smart to do it. But in that case, it's, you know, it's, it's almost like it almost makes more sense when you go, well, you need to make $2,000 in traffic stop, in, uh, in, um, traffic fines tonight. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, or think about the job of somebody who's what we used to call a meter maid. It's their job to go like make money for the government by giving people tickets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's partly about the local merchants, you know, having a way to keep parking spaces open, but that's <laughs> that almost that kind of sheriff of Nottingham approach almost <laughs> makes more sense. Like we mm-hmm. want we're going to bust you bust you at the border with drugs because we want your speedboat. Like that kind of stuff in a medieval way makes more sense. In that case, that guy could let you go by and it would be just less chance of danger in his life and less potential paperwork. True. And that's a different kind of bad cop. You know, that's the cliche of the donut eating cop sitting in his car parked in front of a donut shop. Right? The guy who sees a car speeding by and he's like, "Well, there's no evidence that he didn't – there's no evidence of his nonfeasance there. Exactly. So he's just like, eh, you know, people are people or eh, it's too much trouble right now to go chase that guy. And he's making a decision on his own behalf too, uh, which is just to, you know, get paid to do nothing. Um, and that's a different kind of bad cop. And the, the meter made, I think it's just a job to those people, you know. Like that's just – they could be sitting – they could be sitting behind a desk at the DMV making the, making life hard for people or they could be out. You know, that, those are just jobs. It is. And it's I, I feel really I feel really bad for those people um, that they are just, you know, they've got a, they've got a civil service job. They've got to go and do. But, you know, but then on the other hand, when you get a ticket, you didn't feel you deserved. You're like all of a sudden now the world's all different. Because yeah. You, you, you got a ticket. Well, and every once in a while you meet a meter maid who is <laughs> like inhumanly gratified oh it's and that's why the dmv <laughs> example is interesting it's you know again we're getting very much into like cer- certain kind of middle class stereotype but there is that stereotype of somebody who's like ready for you to treat them badly yeah. and who's like preemptively uh you know doing that stuff i don't I got, I got I got no beef. You know, we have a police station very near where I live, and That's so right. we interact with the cops' lodges because we see them, you know, walking around, going to the car, and it, it is it's strange though because uh, there's they the the place near where I live, the cops end up covering something like about a quarter or a fifth of the city, so they have to fan out over a very large area of Western San Francisco. Yeah, and it's just it's always weird though to read something in the paper about like something that happened at 
not just our local police place, but a place that's fairly near our house. Yeah, it's a right. weird thing. It's a weird thing to to because then you go like, oh, that's so strange. Like I never think uh, I don't. I just think about those people as people going to work. Sometimes yeah. we hear sirens. Let's, we, we are fortunate to feel very safe where we live. There's <laughs> cops walking by our house all day long. Um, but but at the same time, like it's it is strange when you go like, oh, that's weird. I don't tend to think of them as stereotypical, like you know, cops. But that's you know. Well, sure, because that guy is taking taking that risk. He pulls over that car full of four guys, and they are white supremacists, and their cars are full of guns, and they're on their way to you know to blow up a synagogue, and there's a shootout, and this this poor cop is in the you know, is in the uh, firing zone. Well, it's also, it's also this, I don't know what you call this, but you know, it, it's also like there, there is something that there might be something that that cop could act on, or let's put it this way. The person driving that car or riding in that car knows there's something that that cop could act on. Now that could be uh, like a small bit of weed in your pocket. Mm-hmm. It could be an outstanding... Not worth killing a cop over, let me tell you. Right. Well, me, yeah, but I mean... Just put that out there to everybody. Well, I'm saying this is just how this is how you get into these Fargo-type situations is where, you know, there's one... that one, And that may be one person in the car that's got weed. Maybe nobody else knows that they have weed or whatever, whatever. Insert J-random drug. Mm-hmm. And it could be that somebody in the car remembers there's a warrant, an outstanding warrant on them. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? There's that kind of stuff where like there are these landmines uh, waiting to happen where nothing really happened that needed to be acted upon except in as much as there, this is part of law enforcement is doing that due diligence to, you know, say, do, is there drugs in here? Anything going to mm-hmm. stab me? You know, let me check right. you out and run, the, you know? So in that case, like if I were a cop, man, I, and I wouldn't be, but like, I would be real circumspect about deciding. Did you ever end up watching Fargo? I I love the fact that that in this conversation you are going into your Scott Simpson register periodically. <laughs> Did I ever tell you about that? Uh, I have never watched the television show Fargo, but oh, right. I, have, okay. I have consumed the movie Fargo. Yeah, the uh, in the second season of that, there's 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 several very tense things involving like one cop and a lot of bad guys, mm-hmm. where you've got to just keep the surface tension from breaking. Well, and this is the thing I think is the insight into the DMV question and the cop question. Which is that, think of 90% of jobs, you are dealing with a select group of people in the course of your day, right? If you work at an insurance agency, you are dealing only with people who are seeking insurance Mm -hmm. and people who are uh, in the insurance trade. And if you are, you know, designing software, even if you're talking on the phone to customer service people, you are dealing with people who are using your selected product. But cops and DMV people, are they're among the only people who deal with everybody. And that, you know, they pull over big Mercedes Benzes and they pull over cars that shouldn't be on the road. And they pull over people who are... You mean like demographically? Demographically, people who are insane, people who are not insane, people who are entitled people who are not entitled you know they pull over they talk to everyone and the dmv is very close to that too like everybody in our world gets a driver's license that's like that's like the first thing you are allowed to do is hurdle down the road in a in a gas-fired uh death death machine machine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, this episode of roderick on the line is brought to you in part by squarespace you can learn more about Squarespace by pointing your browser to squarespace.com. As many of you know, I'm a huge fan of Squarespace. I've been using their stuff for over five years now. 
It's the first place that I suggest for hosting uh, any kind of website you need to do. It's where I put my stuff. It's where Roderick on the Line is, even as we speak, literally. You've got to try this place out because Squarespace sites are professionally designed masterpieces. They look great right out of the box. You don't have to know anything about coding. So easy to use. They have intuitive, super simple tools that may take all the pain out of getting your stuff up. Squarespace also has state-of-the-art technology to power your site that ensures security and stability. And uh, Squarespace is actually trusted by millions of people, some of the most respected companies in the world. They have all kinds of features that you're going to want to check out. They have 24-7 support via live chat and email. That's via teams in New York, Dublin, and Portland. So wherever you are, you're probably just seconds away from talking to somebody at Squarespace. They have the wonderful Squarespace commerce platform, and that allows anyone to add a store to their Squarespace site. They also have a really cool thing you should check out called the cover page. You can build great-looking single-page websites. There's all-in-one pages you see that look so great. It's all rock solid. they got fast hosting, so much more. The crazy part is that Squarespace plans start at a very affordable $8 per month, and that price even includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year, which you should totally do. So please check these folks out, and do tell them you heard about it from your friends at Roderick on the Line. You can start your free trial site today with no credit card required. All you got to do is go visit squarespace.com. And when you do decide to sign up for your Squarespace uh, account, get the year-long one, get the free domain, do it. But also make sure to use the offer code SUPERTRAIN when you check out. That's going to get you 10% off your first purchase. Uh, I think you're going to love this place. They're the best. So our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Roderick on the Line and all the great shows. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Like, you are allowed to do that before you are allowed to do pretty much anything else. And so, so this tidal wave, of everybody comes at you. And I think in those positions, and this is the thing we, you know, we walk up to that counter and we're like, Hey, I'm a normal person and I'm just having a day and hello. And the person behind the counter is like name ID Uh card because they've already dealt with, with such a wide scrum of people. And I guess, I, I guess my experience out in the world is that there are so many people who are difficult to deal with for a variety of reasons. Difficult well, to deal difficult, with. Well, difficult, what I like about your use of the word difficult there is it's not necessarily that they're nasty. It's not necessarily that they're hostile or it could just be that they're difficult to deal with because they don't know how to do what they're doing right now. They exactly. don't know how to be at the DMV. Exactly. You know what I mean? They don't, they don't understand. Maybe there could be a language thing, right? It could be a financial thing. Like, no, sir, I can't run this on three different cards. There's all kinds of reasons that a lot of people wouldn't think about about why this seemingly simple transaction could be confusing. And you get, you get them every day. It's yeah. like, you know, you know I've, I've said before, my hell job, my hell job is to be the person in the TSA line who has to ask you to take the water out of your bag. Because you have to do that. You have to ask people. But no matter how many times you tell them, I think still about one out of ten people will have water in their bag. I've done it. I've spaced it's, it. It's always the person right in front of me, you know, the person that has that, – and it's, I'm sure everybody feels this way. It's the person who appears to never have been in an airport before. This is the first plane they've ever been on. They go up to the security thing and go back to the – uh, back to their right. luggage they don't, they don't four know, times. They don't know what kinds of stuff sets off the alarm. They don't know how to answer the questions. They're, you know, a lot even, of times older Even though people. there's a TSA guy who's been standing there saying the same thing 40 times an hour. Right. Take no. your bags out of your bag. Put your bag in your bag. I'll be the to have it a but he's, he's, he's seen it all. And like no matter he or she, and no matter how often they tell you 
the signs are there. Everybody knows this stuff or should know this stuff at this point. Anybody who's traveling, but it's a hell job because yeah. there's still no, it's the ultimate Sisyphean job. And in some ways, that's a little bit what the DMV would have to be like. And nobody's happy to be there. Except that, you know, that's the incredible thing. Just, I mean, the airport is one of those. One of those experiences that we all share where it's like, oh, my God, I'm in the mass of humanity here. And the TSA is the choke point where, you know, the faster people cannot get through a system faster. The competent people cannot get through more competently. And yet that is even a select group of people that have a reason to fly on a plane. You know, yeah, there's, there, a, there's a built-in, you know, not quite a bias, but people who have traveled a lot are necessarily people who can afford to travel a lot. Right. When, what, what is the percentage of, I mean, I have met so many people in the world who have never been 15 miles from the village they were born in, let alone ever, you know, I mean, they've never been in let, a car- Let alone having a firsthand impression about a certain terminal at LAX and how it's changed over 20 years. Think about that for a minute. Yeah. (laughs) Like, wow, things aren't going too bad in your life if you can be angry about a terminal in the airport. What the hell? They changed the carpet. God, you know, they changed the carpet in the Portland airport. It is really gross there, though. Well, uh, the LAX, come on. uh, They could do a better job. But, like, Portland airport changed their carpet within the last year. Mm -hmm. And I I heard about it more uh, than I'm sure people heard about the moon landing when it happened. You know, just people like, oh, my God, how are we supposed to deal with this carpet? Uh, so, so <laughs> This is really ugly carpet everybody always hated until they decided it was cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then it's just but, like, you know, you still, it's, oh, it's, no. it is, it's, 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 yeah, that's, people are funny like that. We, we need things to be, be uh, melancholy about. You know, I just took a couple of airplanes <laughs> just recently. Did they know? <laughs> uh, I took them. Yeah, I've got them now. Um, they're, I'm not giving them back. Throw me the head. I throw you the whip. But, but, uh, but, you know, no time to I, argue. <laughs> did I tell you that I was, uh, that I received uh, silver medallion status? Oh, wow. How was did the I, ceremony? Was it, did, did, I, did, did you I bring your family along? I did get a certificate. Uh, it was a virtual certificate. <laughs> Let it be noted this day <laughs> it, it that John Morgan Roderick has achieved <laughs> silver medallion status for his ability to sit on a plane for over 25,000 right. miles. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> Oh, dong, yes. Oh, yes. Dong. <laughs> uh, so I got silver medallion status and my more well-traveled friends, uh, uh, one of whom is consistently uh, has a gold status. My friend Jason Finn had a nickname. Well, we, for many years, he was, just, he was called uh, Gold Member. Because when he traveled, he was obsessed with his, his mileage plans. And for many years, That's you know, like, it's he, like a version of sports for some people. It is. But he was in the famous band, uh, uh, Presidents of the United States of America, uh, who routinely flew to Europe and uh, Asia and Australia. Didn't they just go in for like a weekend sometimes? That's, they would. They would fly to Belgium, play, play a big show, fly home. You know, they'd leave on Friday, be back on Sunday, which was bananas to me. But, you know, they were paid very handsomely. But the thing is, they would fly to Australia and Jason would be in first class and the rest of his band and crew would be in coach. <laughs> and it's not that they didn't all it's not that they couldn't have all been gold members. It's just that the other guys didn't bother to do the uh, the paperwork and obsess over the over that little bit of, of saving up your credits, right? And so they'd get on the plane, and, and his bandmates were rightfully furious, but Jason would be like, well, then manage your, manage your miles. And 
the thing is Jason appointed himself to be the travel uh, coordinator for his band. So he made sure that they always flew on the airlines that he was interested in collecting miles on. You know, he had a whole plan, a project. And I, and I think he, he like berated his bandmates. You should do this. You should do this. And they, they, you know, and they just felt like it was beneath their dignity. But anyway, I, so I have several friends who are gold members, but then I also have one famous friend that you and I both know who has just achieved diamond status. Is that Hodgman? Yeah. He was platinum for a long time, and then he, he went over. He actually made a specious cross-country trip for no other reason than to achieve diamond status at the very end of the year. It was just like, well, you're only 5,000 miles away from diamond status. And he was like, all right, I'm flying. Somebody in Portland was like, we'll give you $50 to show up for the opening of this bottle of wine. <laughs> and, and John was like, you know what? I'll do it uh, just to achieve. So now he's diamond status. And so I, you know, so I wrote, I wrote an email, I, I'll admit, to a few people. And I was like, I just got silver status. Look at me. Whee! And I got back all these condescending emails. Congratulations. I hope you know that silver status uh, accords you nothing. You know, there was seriously like, it was like the, the Dukes and the Earls were congratulating somebody that got an MBE, like the lowest grade. It would be like it would be like uh, telling like a Rothschild, you, you just bought stock. Yeah, I got some stock. I got a stock. Hey, look at me! <laughs> and so I got all this, I got all this like shade thrown at me about my silver status. Like, oh, great silver status. You know, they just give that to you to like to like get you on the hook so that it's now like you're the first big payout of the night on nickel slots. <laughs> it's like, exactly. this will keep him here for a while. Cause mm-hmm. now, now that, that thing is, it, it, it's a little bit of a, how do you always refer to it as a white, white ribbon? Mm-hmm. Is that what you call it? Oh, uh, well, yeah, I would call it the white ribbon. That's right. The white, you've called it the white it's, ribbon. It's, the, problem. You know, it's, it's either the third place finish <laughs> or in some cases, the participation. The ribbon. participation I think is standard coach, but I mean, white, you know, really maybe it's more like getting a sixth place ribbon mm-hmm. where it's like, I didn't know they made ribbons like this, <laughs> yeah. but somebody had to take the time to figure out I like tied for sixth. Yeah. It's the brown so, ribbon. <laughs> it's right. But I mean, it's like, even when, oh God, I hate talking about airplanes. We've got to stop. But like, uh, for me, like, uh, I mean, even being in not business class or first, but like when you get to like the priority boarding and like yeah. you paid to get in, like, you know, for me, that's uh, if I can afford it when I fly or somebody else is paying for me, that's always Virgin's uh, main cabin select, right? which is great. It's so great because it's already it's very close to business class or at first. It's so great. You get all the free TV, you get all the free food, you get all the free alcohol, you get a nice big chair to sit in, but they're all well, nice and, big and, chairs on and, Virgin. And typically you are then seated next to someone who also understands not to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. You, right? you do a very, very quick, polite greeting. At the beginning, yeah. and then you you maybe say something after the wheels hit the runway. No, I sure. totally agree. You stare at your device. Maybe you one don't get you somebody. Will... You don't get somebody with a large pizza and two hundred papers to grade. <laughs> I'll never forget this woman. This woman walked on into the middle seat with a pizza that was larger than her. Wow. Uh. So, but then the thing is, it's with all these statuses, and it's hilarious. I'm sure there's been a million stand up bits about this, but all the statuses where you start with like you know military people in uniform and people with disabilities, kids. Yep. And then you go through like, and it's hilarious to me. There must be like six different statuses. Million milers, then diamond, then 
Yeah, you've got then, you've got uh, you know I'm trying to think on on some of the you go, there's always something like uh, international class platinum or something. There's the highest level, and then you go through all the different medals, uh, and it's incredible though because like even when you paid to have the earlier seating, uh, it, what what you've really gotten is you are the people who board right before the the bad people who yeah, didn't but pay extra. But you know that that first forty people on the plane that are all those statuses are also the people that know how to get on an airplane. They know. That they're all carrying small bags. If you notice, usually, you know, there's very few of I've those. I've seen a people. lot of leakage back into the larger bag than is really. Yeah, there's that's happening. That's that's chronic, right? But yeah, but you're not going to see somebody with with platinum status that's carrying loose fruit. <laughs> that's carrying a, a like a huge a huge bag, another huge bag on top of it, then an accordion in its case, and then a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and then a huge bag of monkey chow. <laughs> the airline said the monkey can sit in my lap. <laughs> what are you talking about? Though it's a service monkey. <laughs> it's an in-lap monkey. Anyway, the point of the point of this story <laughs> and a pizza. is that and a pizza, right? Uh, the, uh, or a can of tuna fish is who what, sells you, know. you a pizza to take on a plane? Oh my god, I I've done it. Oh, John. I was in an airport one time and I was like, wait a minute, you'll sell me an entire pizza? And they were like, yes. And I was like, sold. That, is, took, that is such a hate crime. No, I took it on the plane and I was like, woo, I got a pizza. And the people <laughs> next to me were like, oh my God. And I was like, are you kidding me? Everything, I've got a pizza. Everything smells so much worse on a plane. Oh, it does because it mingles with the farts and the air the, conditioning. Yeah, and, the long tube is not going to let that escape. Uh, somebody somebody so, brings a fucking hoagie on. But listen, you know, the guy next to me was probably took his shoes off, you know, and the, it was just like, I've got a pizza. I, it, was the, it was one of the few moments I got on a plane and I turned into like a like a four year old monkey. Right. Like I was just like, I have pizza. <laughs> ha 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 ha. Uh-huh. Me, me boss man. <laughs> but in any case. Uh, yeah. So back, back of, to silver status. Of five of the six flights I've taken since I got silver status. Five, five out of the six, I was upgraded to first class. What? As a silver status. That's flyer. unheard of for free. Just I get to the airport. I'm 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 walking in. You know, of course, I have pre-checked because I'm. Uh, Is this on United? Those guys? On no 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 no. I wouldn't fly United if the world had come to an end and they were the only flight, and it was a flight away from an erupting volcano. We found a seat for your daughter out of the I, apocalypse. There's one seat left. One seat left. No, no, fuck you. I will die here in the lava flow before I get on a United and She's flight. not getting on either. No, no, no. We all die. We all die. Rather okay, what airline? What airline? Shit airline. Uh, you know, I don't want to give free advertising to some stupid <sighs> airline. I think they're all garbage. But There's I like 11 people listening to the show, John. What fucking airline is it? <laughs> I fly Delta. Obviously. Well, no, they're terrible. They're all terrible, <laughs> they're but all Delta terrible. But Delta so anyway, Jason Finn sends me he sends me he's like when he realizes that I'm interested in this stuff. Because and what got me interested, frankly, a couple of years ago I did 50 flights in a year. And I just was I was going online and just picking flights based on how cheap they were. And then I flew to Africa with Jonathan Colton. Oh, yeah, right. Who got upgraded across the ocean and sat up there basically pouring glasses of free wine on the carpet clean that uh, up slave <laughs> while i was back in coach you know uh wh- which was uh you know which was like uh, the like tatooine <laughs> and then we get to paris and jonathan gets upgraded on an air france flight to oh. Ni- to naimi Niger. There ain't no upgrade like an Air France upgrade. 
where it's just Whoa. like you get the what and he's like yeah it's part of the fucking star alliance or whatever see you later dork <laughs> and went up there and was basically i mean it was he was basically like in a pagliacci hat hitting people over the head with a loaf of french bread <laughs> and i you know and i'm back in coach on a flight uh, on an air france flight and it's just like okay all right. Well, there are two banthas down there. What's it? That's right. That's right. <laughs> I had my. He doesn't I, like you. <laughs> I don't like you either. <laughs> I just want to get, sir. I just want to get out of France. Yeah, give me a break here. You just watch yourself. <laughs> so yeah, it's like the it's like the guy that makes eyeballs in Blade Runner. Oh right! Or no, not the guy that makes eyeballs. The guy that tells him where to get the guy that makes eyeballs. Uh huh. Uh-huh. The guy, the guy in the cold room. That one guy, guy that's in everything. That's right. What's his name? I should know his name. Uh, he is in everything. And he's he in plays- Seinfeld. He's the he's the uh, ten minutes, five ten minutes. Mm. That guy's the best. Anyway, I'll cut this out. In a, in a case, so anyway, you're uh, in Tatooine so, and John, Jonathan's so, in a Pagliacci hat. Yeah. So then I get back to America and I run into Jason Finn. My close friend and advisor and consigliere. Mm-hmm. And I say, Jason Finn, what the hell? Jonathan Colton smugly flew all the way across the world, like just just content and and with his fucking I went to Yale card in his wallet. So he feels like that's all just part of it's all what he deserves, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how do I what am I supposed to do? And Jason said, First mistake, you fly on whatever airline. You need to you need to pick an airline and stick with it. Second mistake. Don't make the don't make the second mistake, and he sent me a long. He sent me these links to websites where people talk about their mileage plans. I used to there, be one of these people. There are websites where people do nothing but rate airline mileage plans. Yeah, and the consensus is that Delta has the best one, even though it's not as good as it used to be. Even though they changed the carpet in the Portland airport, it's like it's like being dropped into the nicest oubliette. <laughs> Oh, oh, this is this is much less moist than the other one. <laughs> I I only have to wipe off my glasses every uh, every twenty minutes. <laughs> There's only human shit in two corners. Ooh, five stars. <laughs> so so I sign up for it anyway. So now I'm, you know, and H- Hodgman and Colton are also on Delta, and so Hodgman all the time he loves to take me into the Delta Sky Lounge in various airports. And we go into the Delta Sky Lounge, which is not a place I would go under any circumstances. If I was living in an airport and I had – if I was one of those people who was in an immigration status where I had to live in JFK for a year, I would rather sleep in front of a Sparrows than ever go into a Delta Sky Lounge. It's just like the most hateful place. You're surrounded by like just that, that, that creepy class of – yeah people that are and they're just, just like, they're, 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 they're they're so they're swaddled in privilege and they're just so happy to eat like fucking cookies out of those little cupcake things uh, or like eating a free bagel and a banana and they're just gonna end a refill of their fucking coffee yeah there's so like gross there's like a coffee machine and some bananas you know and and uh and some copy of copies of business week like i'm glad it exists but the people are the worst worst. it's so bad and hodgman knows they are he so he takes me in there and we sit in the comfortable chairs and we look around and and it's just one of those situations where like look at that asshole oh my god look at this asshole coming in here just like oh my god this is awful but he loves to be in there and he loves to bring me in there and so anyway so i'm silver status and i'm just thinking like 
whack a whack a whack a right? And then I get upgraded to first class five out of six times, and I feel like that's unheard of, John. I, I so I roll over on my belly, and I'm like, Delta, stroke my tummy, you know? Like I completely surrender all my dignity. Yeah. And now I'm sitting in the departure lounge and I'm looking up at the little screen and it's just like, my name is on the list. My name is, you know, my three letter yeah. representation of my name is up there. And then I'm, then I come up to the gate and I'm like, come on, come on, come on. And then you go up and you on. say, I am J-Rod. Yeah. Hello, hello, <laughs> come on, come on, come on. And they're like, ding. And now all of a sudden I'm sitting up front and I got a golden ticket. <laughs> yeah. People are nice to me. Yep. But the problem is on the last flight, the woman next to me discovered that I was from Wales. I don't know how, I don't, you know, I don't know what happened. What? I, it was just, I, I let it slip I, that, that my people were from Wales, right? Oh, okay. Because she was speaking with an accent and I can't resist when someone's speaking with an accent. I oh, and now you open the door and now you're going to talk about Wales. Yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't resist being like, so are you from blankety blank? Like, it's just, I can't stop myself, uh-huh. right? So, are you from Sumatra? And it's just this thing where I look at them and I'm just guessing. I just want to guess where they're from. I want to I wanna be, I, first of all, I want to guess where they're from. Second of all, I want to be right. Uh-huh. Because when you're right and the person is like, oh, how did you know I was from Sumatra? Most people don't even know a, that it, that exists. And, I, and then you're just like, <laughs> well, I am the most interesting man in the world. So I, the wear patterns on your elbow, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, you know, so I, so I guess she's from Bristol, and I'm wrong. And then it turns out she's from Cardiff, and I'm like, oh. And I, for a brief second, I sustain the possibility that this is going to be an interesting conversation, even as it's dawning on you, this was a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, you know, and pretty soon she's talking to me about her graduate thesis, and I'm. That she obviously did 35 years ago, and it was on the universality of religions, which normally would be an interesting topic to me. But in this particular circumstance, it was it was not enjoyable, and I and I ended up being I ended up being the the rude person that I never am, which is that I I was like I've got to go to the bathroom when I didn't got up and went to the bathroom. Made myself go, and then came back and immediately started doing the crossword in the in, in-flight magazine. Yeah, and you know, and I could feel, I could feel for a moment a little bit of of pregnancy between us, where she was like, "Are we not going to resume right. the conversation about my master's thesis or my graduate thesis?" Right, right. And I was like, uh, four-letter word for Tatooine." Um, <laughs> Oh, that's, that's you know? so awkward because there are some people that I, – I, I'm always amazed because I get very introverted on a flight. Mm-hmm. I do – I mean, you know, I'm happy to talk and be, you know, be gracious and say thank you and things like that. But like, I do not want to give any signal that I would like to have a conversation that has no clear end to it. All right, and there are some there. people – there are some people – I don't know why, but I mean like, you know, it's – I don't know. I'm already so on edge, but like some people really, really want to talk on a plane. Maybe because they're nervous, you think? Or maybe because it's just ex- – it's an exciting thing for them. Maybe they're excited to be on the plane. I think that they want to talk all the time. I mean, I think that there are lots and lots of people that just – that uh, want to talk, you know? I, I – I, I've been thinking a lot about this lately that there, you know, we talk about emotional intelligence and intellectual intelligence and, mm-hmm. and only, 
only recently, I think, have people even gotten comfortable talking about emotional intelligence. There was intelligence, and then it was, and it was presumed that emotions were the opposite of intelligence, right? I mean, when I was a kid, or even until recently, emotional reactions, emotional behavior was like, whoa, whoa, whoa! You know, why are you having an emotional reaction? You should be reasonable and rational here. I think there are tons and tons of people that still believe that, that emotion is unpredictable, unreliable, and the opposite of being smart. But there are a lot of us that now are able to talk about an emotional intelligence which is different and, and compatible with intellectual intelligence. And, hmm. and I mean, I think part of emotional intelligence is not just being intelligent about your emotions, but other people's. That's, that's, oh, that's 100%. The, that's the real intelligence. 100%. Yeah. But, but the, ability to, uh, the ability to transact and converse in the world of emotion without feeling like it's strange or or uh you know that 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 well as 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 or that's my, invalid or dangerous invalid right that my when my good friend mike squires once said to me emotions are real mm-hmm. and we stared at each other in that moment and i was like it was lightning bolt like oh my god emotions are real and he was like emotions are real he said it three or four times it was like it was mm-hmm. like uh, robin williams talking to matt damon emotions are real emotions are real until i started crying and I was like, wow, emotions are real? Emotions are real. Emotions are real. Wow. But I've just recently started to think about a kind of physical intelligence, a physic- the, this physicality that we see in people that is not just a gift in terms of I can jump high, I can run fast, I can dance well, but it's actually a way of expressing oneself that that they that they need to do it, it in some cases is their primary language and they're and when they're unable to express themselves physically they are you know they're hampered um and this was a thing that i was also contemptuous of you know like uh it's just they're just a jock right just somebody that fucking wants to dance like when are they going to sit down so that we can get real and it was my lack of understanding that that was as real as it got for them this you know the physical expression and it's not you know and i think part of the part of my prejudice is that the physical temporal material world seems less lesser than the psycho spiritual world Hmm. um but you know, the material world is all we've got. Our bodies are all we have. So I'm just trying to learn. I'm trying to study that and learn it. And it's part of having empathy for even more people and realizing that some of the behaviors that I think, uh, some of the behaviors that, that annoy me are actually someone else's language and I should stop being annoyed and start listening to them. That's good. It's weird. It's a good one. Because you look at them and, you know, and it's just like, oh, stop spazzing or, or, you know, like stop being so good at dancing. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and in fact, it's, you know, it's how they, it's how they're trying to communicate. So, I, and I still, this is still experimental for me, you know, 
but it but it seems but it seems right. And sometimes you get you get seated next to somebody like that on an airplane. And and you know, they're using spoken language and it's already a second language to them. Because what they really want to be doing is dancing or throwing a football or you know, expressing hmm. expressing Physical, themselves their way. Physicality as a primary language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of the, what kind of places do you see that? I mean, uh, to me, an obvious one would be a dancer, a dancer, uh, somebody that you know, somebody that is hyper in shape. Because I'm, and I'm thinking more here of the gross movements of the body uh, rather than the fine ones. Like I'm, I'm not sure that being good at life drawing, you know, I think that's that's a different kind of thing we're talking about. We're talking about people who do do big movements, gymnasts. Uh, but you know, but dancers are interesting because it's so athletic, but also so very uh, expressive. Uh, right, 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 right. I mean, it is, but 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 that, but I guess that's the thing. Like dance, we can we can see. Right, it is a language. It's a language of dance. Well, I mean, I, it's and it could be you, you can get into stuff like mime, I guess, and stuff like that. But I, I'm just I'm talking about like <coughs> there's all the stuff that we think about as like the avocations of intelligent people. All the stuff like all the knowledge work jobs and creative jobs, right? So uh, writing, it's writing as an example, whether that's writing music, writing uh, prose, you know, nonfiction, fiction. But in the case of dancing, it's, that's very interesting because the only way to really get dancing is to dance. I mean, yes, obviously you can also write about dancing. You could do movies about dancing. But you it's, can it's dance like, about architecture. You can dance if you want to. Uh, and something John Syracuse has talked about a lot with uh, video games is like... It's oh, I, Marlon, I was just recently... Uh, pedantically instructed uh-huh. on how to pronounce Syracuse. Yeah, I'm not going to get into it. Syracuse. I'm not going to get into it. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, these worlds cannot collide. Uh, yeah. But but like with him, <laughs> I, I still can't get it right. But take out the coups. You got you no seer, no coups. Nope, no coups. No well, coups, you know no what? seer. I, my whole life I've been trying to take out the coups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> take out the coups. Take out the coups, bro. What was I saying? Uh, uh, yeah, so in his case, like, I'm, you know, interested in video games, and I'm playing very gently with some video <laughs> games, but, you know, I'm like, oh, like, there's some of these where I'm really interested in the story of it, where I want to just watch people play it like a movie, mm-hmm. and he's like, that's the thing, is a video game is not a movie. Like, it looks like a movie, but when you're playing it, the, the experience of playing one of these very immersive video games is very, very different. Mm-hmm. I can't understand that, because I haven't played them, and because I don't know how to play them. Just as I can understand that dance is its own language of expression, even though I can't dance. So a video game is not a movie. It's more like a masturbation hole in a wall. No. Oh. That's funny, but no, it's not. <laughs> I don't even think it's funny. I'm just trying to get angry letters because I had such a good time last week So uh, with the angry letters. Uh, but what I'm... But in a, I think that... Seek, seek first to understand, John. You... You made a distinction just now about uh, gross motor skills versus fine. But when I think about the really best surgeons, you know, there is we think of them as as knowledge workers, right? Yeah, like they're 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 good at science and happen to have access to a scalpel. Yeah, they're they're highly highly educated, and so we admire them. But really, what sets brilliant surgeons apart is the is their physicality, their ability to do micro micro stuff with their hands. Yeah, and, and think about the duration of having to stand there and do like open heart surgery for four or six hours, something right. like that. Right. So so it's really their their natural gift in their body when combined with their education 
that makes them so gifted. And that's the, you know, it may be that they're, they are actually people who express themselves in physicality or super good, you know, draftsmen. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, is a, it is a physical talent that has been honed into a skill by practice and education, just as, just as leaping high or uh, putting, on, um, putting on a gold crown and, and uh, leaping high if she, if she wants, right? Mm. Um, so the, st- the distinction that I think I'm making is that, um, the, the, you know, if you think about it, like a Venn diagram, like a very, very complex Venn diagram, there's all these different kinds of skills that are involved that we can arbitrarily put into these different areas, even though there's lots of overflow. You know, there are some kinds of things, and this could even get into the Mihai Csikszentmihalyi idea of flow. Like oh, what, hello. Look, what did look, you just say? Uh, it's, it's, it's something did I'm you just about. have a stroke? Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> talked about it in a lot of different <laughs> places, but he's this guy who writes a lot about creativity and what he calls flow. And he's created this very interesting matrix of, you could think of the y-axis as the level of challenge and the x-axis as the level of skill. So something that you are, that you find not very challenging and that you don't, aren't very good at, you, that causes apathy. Whereas, for example, something where you have a very high level of challenge and very low level of skill, that produces anxiety. So think about you and tagging your MP3s. That's a task that has a very low level of challenge, but a very high level of skill. So I've that's relaxing. That's a crossword puzzle. What is untagging your MP3s? But ta- tagging, ta- like you know the way you like to do your MP3 metadata back in the day, or like a crossword puzzle. No, I did. I never did that. Oh, hmm. ah, <laughs> nice try, buddy. <laughs> I remember when you got your first laptop. You spent a long time making sure the metadata was right. Wow. Okay. All right. Metadata. All right. Okay. Yes, you yeah. caught me. No, 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 but it's also, it could be anything. It could be like, you know, sometimes when you have a job and you're sick of the kind of uh, slow thinking work that you have to do, like you want something really monkey-brained. It's oh, nice to go read file. Now what I do is I go into my contacts. Oh, God. I go through my contacts with a, with a comb so often when I'm sitting in someplace boring where I don't have service. and You'll, I'm just never, like, you'll never run out of that relaxing exercise. You know what I'm going to do right uh, I'm gonna, I'm going to go through my contacts and I'm going to figure out all the things that aren't current and all the things reverend, that are duplicated. Reverend or a brother or a... <laughs> and so anyway, but that, anyway, I'm just saying that in that case, and so, so in his example, Csikszentmihalyi's example, uh, something where you're highly challenged but highly skilled produces a flow state. And that's where you don't even have to think about what you're doing uh, real, right? I mean, where you may be thinking about it, but you lose track of time. Like, mm-hmm. think about when you really get your groove on with like doing something with a song, and you kind of like you disappear into it. And yeah, so anyway, there's those but kinds I of things. I feel like the only thing, Merlin, that I'm really highly skilled at is going through my contacts with a comb. <laughs> I mean, I honestly, I cannot think of another thing. Okay. I mean, you know, I sit at, I sit at home sometimes and separate tie tacks into little boxes. Okay, now what level of challenge is that? Is that low, medium, or high? No, I mean, it's, it is, I feel like, hmm, boy, that's a good question. Because if it's, if it's a high You're level right. of skill with a medium level of challenge, that's, that produces the uh, feeling of control. That's right. You know what? There's no challenge to it. It's just pleasurable. That's relaxing. I have, I have a high <laughs> level of skill and I'm totally relaxed. You're right. Now, what do I do that is super challenging that I have a high level, level of skill Let's at? go through these. So for a high level of challenge, if it's a very high level of challenge and you have a medium amount of skill, that's arousal. That's like, ooh, I can do this. Ooh, ooh, ooh. ooh, ooh Whereas, ooh. again, if you have a low level of skill, that's anxiety. Now, how about this? Here's one. If you have a medium level of skill 
and you have a low level of challenge, that's boredom. So you go from apathy to boredom to relaxation, depending on how high your skill is. You know what it is? I have a Is this high, kind of an interesting concept? It is. I have a high level of skill and a high level of challenge diagnosing other people's problems. That gives you flow. You got the flow oh my on. God, I really have some flow. And when that gets going, mm-hmm. when, when that gets going, like, you really start oh, flowing. What's wrong with my life? And I'm like, tell me more about your life. And then they <laughs> tell you, and you're like, hmm, okay. It's like dangling right. a pork chop in front of a wolf. Okay, let's get started here. So let me ask you a few questions. <laughs> I love that shit. And it's just like, oh, I just I get into this thing where I feel like I'm ice skating in the Olympics. So I just wanted to, so there's, there's those kinds of things to qualify, like what kind of job is this? What's your skill at this? But then the, the so the, the distinction, the biggest distinction I was making in my head, and I can't think of many that fit this, is in order to produce the thing that you produce primarily with your job, does it require any large muscle group apart from the gluteus? Right? So you might have to move some office supplies around, but mostly even if you're an architect, you're mostly like, you know, you're, you're using finer, finer skills. You're not using your shoulders that much. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's, the, I'm trying to think of stuff besides dance and construction work. Like, what are some other kinds of jobs where the primary thing that you do, I mean, how many jobs are there where the primary thing you do requires the coordination of large muscle groups that isn't like a blue collar job? How many yoga instructors are there in the world? <gasps> that's true. There yoga. are, there, there are 2,000 yoga instructors for every 3,000 people. Mm-hmm. That's mandated yeah. by, by the Yoga Council. Certainly in the world that I live in, uh, whenever somebody uh, like whenever somebody is <laughs> going through a life change, right. they become a yoga instructor. And you get accredited uh, by the Yoga Council. Yoga Council. Yoga Council. Did you notice did, I'm carrying a mat? Did I? <laughs> did I ever tell you about the time I was in a, a Vancouver hotel room, and I was laying in bed, and I turned on the television, and the channel that the cable was on, I think it might have even been the Maybe I maybe I clicked the button once to get off of the hotel. Yeah, the the all about the, the way too loud all about the hotel station. Yeah, bing da da. Welcome to the blank hotel. Um, so I clicked. In room dining is available till eleven p.m. <laughs> Try our spa. Would you like to wear uh, watch an adult movie? Hot stone massage. So I clicked on that. I clicked on the button once, and it immediately went to the yoga channel, hmm. which I had never seen. And I believe maybe exclusive to Canada. Uh, and so I was like, Yoga Channel, let's see what this is about. And I laid back on my uh, pillow while this woman did yoga. And then it was clearly her. She was narrating her yoga practice, but, but you know, like an overdub. Mm-hmm. So as she did the yoga, she was also describing what she was doing, but but you couldn't see her mouth move because she was consumed by the yoga. Mm. And she had a physicality that was unbelievable, like the her flexibility and her the ability to do these yogas. And I watched for a half an hour, mm. completely <laughs> like drawn in, like mm-hmm. in a in a, in a sense, like what is she gonna do next? Right. Like, is she going to thread herself through the eye of a needle? Is this the path to heaven? Mm. Uh, what, you know, is she doing permanent damage to herself? She doesn't appear, she looks very blissed out. And the thing was that her, her narration was constant. And by the tone of her voice and by her narration, I knew that she was not going through the eye of a needle into heaven. Mm. Because I found her annoying and I'm sure God would too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But... Wow, a fantastic expression of, of like physical communication. Uh, I hadn't so, thought of that one. There's probably lots of other ones too. I guess in some ways being um, 
a trainer or a coach would be another one. Mm-hmm. There's not that many, you know, performing or visual arts that require big muscles. But I mean, a footballer, a baseballer, oh, sure, sure, a basketballer, sure. mm-hmm. a hockeyer, um, a, a hockeyer, as they say in the hockeyer, right? right. Uh, a, uh, I mean, all of the sporters, mm-hmm. and then even a race car driver. Oh, sure, that counts. That's that's pretty supposedly pretty grueling. You're not just sitting there, you know. You're not riding the car. You're driving it. I, that's right. Um, and so tell me, what do you think about skyscraper window washer? Oh, boy, that's an interesting job to me. Right? Because yeah. you have to have a native, I think, a native ability to get up there on that scaffold and not, and not be wearing adult diapers every day. Oh, yeah. I also think about things like there's, there's also these jobs that are such a, like a corner case or an edge case. Like, think about being a piano tuner. What a weird job that is. Mm-hmm. You ever been in a room when a piano's being tuned? Mm-hmm. It's really maddening. Are you kidding me? That's another thing like the yoga channel. I can't leave a room where a piano's being tuned. You can't? Oh, my goodness. I remember the day in second grade when they tuned the upright piano in our class, and I thought by lunch I was going to lose my mind. <laughs> dung, dung, <laughs> well, dung, and the, you know, dung, and when, dung. When I, when I learned about tempering a piano, hmm. oh, my God, I sat around thinking. I still think about it. Is that really it. a thing? I thought Bach made that up. How do you, they, how do you, how do you temper a clavier? Well, they do it, you know, where everything is just where where things are slightly out of tune as they progress away from middle C. And if they're not out of tune, if they're all perfectly in tune, then the piano sounds bonkers and Hmm. unfriendly. So you have to, you know, things have to be. and And I hear about I hear this about guitar all the time. I remember Eddie Van Halen speaking to me directly through the television Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, back when uh, there was still an MTV. And he described that the B string on a guitar needs to be just slightly flat, huh. just a few cents flat, in order for the guitar chords to sound nice. And if your B string is tuned perfectly, you're always going to feel a little bit out of tune. Which is why, a, which is why a, uh, you know, if you go with an electric tuner and you're just, you're just really nailing the tuning it's always a little bit mm. and so having heard that in 1984 that's interesting and it what is the special nature of the b in that case well the b kind of doesn't belong almost you know that's the th- that's the magic um you know the b is sort of the uh-huh. the magic note where it's the one where you uh it's it's off yeah it's kind it's of one that's ne- off by one it's necessary to be there like that in order to make chords easy to play or in order to make those three strings in the middle. Can you middle. imagine how... Am I, so, I'm sorry. I'm going to be dumb for a minute because I don't have a guitar right in front of me. But that's the one that's not like a fifth at the second. That's right. Not like the others. And so can you imagine like if you were the person who was coming up with the guitar, like how your OCD tendency would certainly be to make them all that way. Oh, like how whoever, infuriating Whoever had to make be? that decision, like how crazy that would make you feel. Yeah, just like, wait a minute. One of them has to be one... One step off, uh, but like, it's yeah, that, yeah, it's actually going to work way better. And then you're yeah, like, no, 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 there's no way that that's going to make it work better <laughs> because that DGB in the middle, like so many guitar chords, have DGB either either ringing open or barred as a as a single bar. Right, that's mm-hmm. the little chord DGB, but that B kind of mm, it just wants to be, and so so my whole career, I have I've tempered my B. By a couple of cents when I'm tuning with an electric tuner. I've I never, never heard this. I never get it all the way to perfect. I just leave it a little tiny bit flat. 
And that's something that Eddie Van Halen told me. And when Eddie Van Halen says something about guitars, you kind of just have to sit up a little bit and go, all right, all right, Eddie Van Halen. Tell me what I'm supposed to know. You say how high when he says jump. That's right. Now, if Eric Clapton had told me that, I would have sure. been like, sure, blues man. But Eddie Van Halen. It's like a bag of dicks, Clapton. <laughs> Eddie Van Halen invented a new, he oh, invented a new thing. He, he, yeah, yeah. He's the reason for the season. He invented brown brown sound. He invented the brown. He invented the brown sound. And then did I? You remember the self same brown sound that makes people poop. Theoretically. No, no, no. That's, that's the, the US brown Army tone. Brown sound. That's the brown that's, tone. That, you know, a lot of people use brown sound. In fact, there was a clothing company in the in the mid two thousands called Brown Sound, and I think they were I think they copped that from Eddie Van Halen, and they used to send me free clothes. Huh? But they were one of those clothing companies where an extra large in Brown Sound clothes fit like a medium in Carhartt clothes. Hmm. Weird. And I I was still making the transition to. Uh, to dressing like a sausage. <laughs> do, you, do you remember that? Do you remember when hmm. there was a there was a moment, and I think it was emo. It was emo pioneered this. Maybe maybe pre emo. You remember when there pre-emo. was. You remember when there was a, a pre emo, but it was already emo. It's just we hadn't invented that term yet. I think so. I mean, you're talking about like the early '90s, mid '90s. Yeah, mid mid mid. Probably to earlier, earlier, earlier. Like, but after after Minor Threat, but before Fugazi. Well, I'm not talking about the sound of the music. I'm talking oh. about the style of the people where all of a sudden, you know, like tight black, not tight black Levi's, but tight Everybody black. Everybody dressed like Ted Leo. It, it, well, except that there was a moment that I recall when I first started seeing chubby kids, by which I mean people that had my build, mm-hmm. wearing super tight clothes, mm-hmm. super tight t-shirts, super tight pants. And I remember the first time I saw it, it I was like, <gasps> oh my God, like that guy has my build, which is to say dad bod, mm-hmm. or even a little bit more dad bod, more than dad bod. But he's wearing really tight clothes, like he's proud of his body, like that's like that is an acceptable rock and roll style. And it was a it he's, was a moment he's wearing he's wearing clothes that do not reflect the shame he's supposed to feel. That's right. Like that you excuse me, sir, you should be dressed like a sleeping bag. <laughs> Like are you aware? And like I've called it the dignity police, right? Uh, sir, are you aware? Are you aware that you should not feel this good about yourself? <laughs> yeah, for for all of recorded history, <laughs> chubby people have worn moo-moos, and y- you are fucking it up by wearing tight clothes. And yet, and yet, sitting over here, if I were ta- if I were sitting over here in a group of people, I would be duty bound to say, "Oh my God, look at that! Look at that dummy!" Mm-hmm. But sitting over here by myself, looking at you, I I must confess that you look a little sexy, uh-huh, uh-huh. like you are a little bit of a husky person, and yet it is sexy to me. Uh-huh. But I did not personally dare to go out of the house wearing tight clothes. Heaven no! I mean that was when I made that was when I first made the transition to western shirts. Oh, maybe western shirts will do the job of making me look like Jay Farrar, but also concealing that I was Husky. <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's the classic mistake that Husky people make. Western shirts are kind of like a form of razzle-dazzle camouflage. 
Exactly. And I mean, did, am I wrong? Am I just? I'm not just saying that to be clever. I think that might actually be true. That's exactly right. Right. It's hard it, to tell it, where you are exactly. Way better draws, than camouflage. Camouflage disguises eye. your clothes. Western shirts disguise your gut. And yeah, they disguise your gut, and they make it seem like you know what? Maybe I'm one of those guys in Willie Nelson's band. <laughs> and also, but you know what it does is the thing is like, yeah, you can wear a black T-shirt, you could wear a black dress shirt, but a Western shirt, it seems like it has some added stiffness. Where with, alongside the razzle dazzle uh, decoration, it kind of throws off the ability to guess what your chest to gut ratio is. Yes, it's got a boxiness to it that makes you look a little bit like Western royalty. See, I don't know if Donald Duck Dunn ever actually wore a Western shirt, hmm. but Donald Duck Dunn was was one of those influences where it was like nobody's ever going to call out Donald Duck Dunn or Bun E. Carlos. Mm-hmm. And say, you guys aren't rock and roll. Donald Duck Dunn and Bun E. Carlos are rock as fuck, but also a little husky. Is he right? still around? Is that oh, right? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. no, no. He died in 2012. Who did? Donald, Donald Duck Dunn? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I think he died of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. I think he died of having played the bass on Green Onions. He's so cute when he was young. Look at He's him. He's very cute with the pipe. With and the, the thing pipe. is, when, yeah. when you listen to him being interviewed, he is a real Southern cracker. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he, you, it's like, holy cow. But boy, like, what, what, a, what, a, what a profound influence. Yep. But that, that whole sausage casing. Uh, style of dressing, I gradually came around to it when I, well, it was just very recently when I bought my first pair of skinny jeans and regardless of how they looked to people up close, when I saw pictures of myself on stage in skinny jeans, I realized if you're in show business, people want to see your legs. If you're in show business... People want to see your legs. That's right. They want to see the contours of your legs if you're oh, in show business. Oh, right. So, and you know what? It's yeah. Especially with regard to live performance. I never would have thought of it that way. They don't normally see your legs. They want to see your legs. This they want is to see the, your this, legs. This is why baseball uniforms and football uniforms and fencing uniforms and all of the clothes that were worn in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, they all were like, who you know, uh, ruffles and frills and whatever you want and, and pa- shoulder pads and gigaws all on the top half doesn't matter but the legs are like in tights basically i miss the days of uh, all the baseball uniforms having those socks oh the socks well ichiro always wore the socks and now today they wear yoga pants a lot of them it's real you know you still have the option of wearing the socks that's still it's like it's like in the u.s military mm-hmm. when when i was in the civil air patrol we all got books on military grooming mm-hmm. that were clearly all printed up in 1965. But there was a protocol for wearing a mustache and tasteful sideburns in these. So this is 1980, 1980 let's say. Mm-hmm. You could be in the Air Force and wear a mustache and tasteful sideburns. I mean, obviously not in boot camp, but it was part of appropriate military dress. Now, I don't know if that's true anymore. When was the last time you saw an army man who had a mustache who wasn't in the special forces? And a gay bar. Well, no, that's right. No, no, I mean, that, there's a certain kind right, of... A different kind of army man. Yeah, right. Uh, no, you don't see that so much. They, uh, that seems to be going through a buy time for them. You don't, uh, but then, you know, I don't see that many people in active military service unless they're boarding the plane in front of me. 
Well, but you see them on on television when you watch uh, all the the shows about uh, the military doing special ops. Don't that's you? true. Oh yeah, all of all the great shows, all the great special ops shows. Uh, but but in any case, yeah, they want to see your legs. I don't know why, but I want to see your legs too. If you get up there, well, and this is the other thing about like cowboy era, Deadwood era, when people started wearing pants rather than hose. Trousers. Trousers. Mm-hmm. I like to make that distinction for our English listeners. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. That's right. Trousers. They have, they, they have a laugh uh, when we say, uh, we say pants. Do they have a good laugh? They also have a laugh when I want to say nonce. Uh, because uh, pants in British uh, language means... You might as well uh, be saying panties. Oh, I see. Right. And nonce, which I used to mean a one-of-a-kind black swan type thing, uh, that's pedo in, uh, in England. Ooh. So you got to learn. It's like when they put out the, the Chevy car that in Spanish means it doesn't go. <laughs> Would you like to buy a new Noba? <laughs> uh, 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 but I, I, uh, I, I love those pants, those cowboy pants. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I, I went into a tailor one time and I was like, why can you never find cowboy pants? And they were like, oh, you mean stovepipe? Oh, right. And I was like, stovepipe? And they were like, yes, the leg is perfectly straight in a stovepipe pant. It is not tapered. So you're thinking it's like Seth Bullock pants? Mm. When he, well, yeah, like Seth from, uh, from Deadwood. When, he, yep. when he, he's walking around with his hand, arms down real straight at his sides, and he's got, yeah, that's a good look. Yeah, so, so the pants are, they, they have to be kind of tight uh, to, and, and difficult to get on, right? Because your foot is, your foot is going through a pipe that is the same width at the ankle that it is at the, at the hip or whatever. So you're just like, ah, you got to like really point your toe and get those things on. And then like a good cowboy, never take them off, right? Once you've got your pants on, why are you going to take them off? I, I've been I've been wearing the same pants for mm, about a month now. Sure, so you can let your pants down because they're new. You know, you know the you know the procedure. Sure, you got to wear them. You got to wear them until you break them. Mm-hmm. You got to break their will. Mm-hmm. Right, the pants are on you. I don't wear them when I sleep anymore. I used to I used to sleep in them, and now I don't do that anymore. I used to take baths in them. I don't do that anymore. Now I just wear them every day. Did you ever wear them into the ocean? Mm-mm. I remember when those when the first like selvage premium denims came out. Mm-hmm. I hate to talk about all the free shit I've gotten, but one time I was in Austin <laughs> and we played an in-store at a, at a like uppity men's clothing boutique when these things were brand new. And in thanks, they gave me two pairs of what I'm sure were $250 jeans. Hmm. And the salesperson said, listen, you're not meant to wash these. And I was like, huh? And he said, to get them to fit properly, you really should wade into the ocean hmm. with them on. And I was like, this is a, you guys are in Austin. How do you, and he's like, we make special trip to the ocean. You wade into the ocean. The, the, and, and, I, and I really do think he was like, he wasn't saying that, he, he was saying that the salt water uh, did something, but what he was really saying was that you need to break the gene's spirit mm-hmm. or, or rather tame the spirit of the genes. Like, like, a, like a Mustang. Yeah, that's right. Like tame a Mustang. Mm-hmm. Like, the, like the white horse on the Turkish train 
in Lawrence of Arabia. Hmm. You or, or Perseus with the uh, with the flying uh, horse. Hmm. Flying horse. Next so, you know, Harry Hamlin. Yeah. So you buy Levi's five hundred one un unwashed jeans, mm-hmm. and then you put them on, and they are like Perseus. Yeah, it's a lot like Perseus. And I, I have a, uh, I don't want to take care of your story. I mean, I have a certain procedure. Uh, one of the things I do is I, I adjust the cuff every time I wear them so they don't wear into a single cuff pattern. Ooh. I have three different rough areas that I try to never duplicate the same fold so they don't get one fold in them. Mm-hmm. Because that's, that's, that's the rookie mistake because now you're going to have, and then the wear at that point too. So later on down the road when the jeans have shrunk by various means, mm-hmm. by various uh, effects, then you unroll the cuffs and there's not a dramatic line. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like them to be big. That's that's why I get these pants. I like I like them big overall. And well, uh, you, but they will they will accommodate your body. Sorry, go ahead. You you need big pants. I do. I need big pants. Yeah, big yeah. pants. Big boy. Big pants. <laughs> uh, yeah. So what other things do I do? That's that's mostly it. Then you just wear them every day. You wear them when you sit. You wear them when you stand. You wear them when you lay down. You wear them all day until you go to bed. You can sleep in them. I have slept in them in the past. But and you don't wash them. And then. Um, now they're, they're yours for life. And then only wash them in uh, cold water. Let me ask you this. Hmm. I, you know, I know that you, you aren't typically this way. But do you ever take your, once you've been wearing a pair of jeans for a while, and once they have shown their hige. Hmm? I don't know that term. Oh, hige? No, what is that? Hige, is it like swanye? Hige is a Japanese term for the little mustache of wear lines that form (gasps) around your crotch specifically your crotch well sure and the little (gasps) the little mustaches that form are like cat whiskers emanating from the cat nose of your penis head i've never never heard that term or that concept and that is hige and that is from the that is from the Japanese uh, fascinate or the Japanese vintage jean market. If your if your nineteen sixties red tab red selvage jeans, which you paid twenty thousand dollars for, a lot of what you're buying there is really nice hige. So when when you are wearing in a new pair of jeans, and you have developed that first hige. Mm-hmm. Do you ever sometimes take your jeans off and lay them on the floor and appreciate them mm, from not, afar? Not, not till this afternoon. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I know do that, that. I feel like I should do I, that. I know this isn't a thing that is is typical of you, Mm-mm. but once you've got some good hige going, take your jeans off, put them on the floor, lay them out, and then just stand back and just see just, them. Just look at it. Look at it for what it is. That's right. See them for mm-hmm. what. See them for what they are, which is an extension of your motion. Hmm. They represent your. Does it have to just be the crotch, John? It's just the no, crotch. no, no. They're, they're, I think I think the wear around the rest of the jeans, the he gay that happens on your knee or whatever, doesn't look like cat whiskers. Oh, I see. So it probably has a different name. I do like to admire them when I've been wearing them for a while, and I put them down, and they still look like me without me yeah, in them. Yeah. I, that's yeah. that's very. I feel like I'm doing my work. Oh, for sure. Look at that. Like, there it is. A record of me written in I don't even have to be there. They understand me so much that I don't even have to be there to be my pants. You can stand them in the corner and they will do, they will do small administrative tasks for you. Right? People come into your office and they have a stupid question for you. You're the Hige can answer. Pantsley, let's pick, let's, (laughs) let's pick up some more tape. 
Hey, Merlin's pants. What do I do about? What do I do about? The, do I have to move the car when the parking changes out front? Let Merlin's me pants can answer that. That's every other Monday, but you don't have to do it this week. Thanks, Pantsley. Thanks, Pants. Uh, that's uh, that is something. I mean, you know, I, in, in fact, Merlin's pants want, uh, once went and uh, and got dim sum for us. I remember. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> How'd it go? Oh, 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 good. oh, shit. Oh, shit, Merlin's pants. Let me get that. Oh, that must have been heavy. Oh, that's cool. I'm, <laughs> bloom, glad. Bloom, bloom, walking down the street. Bloom, I'm glad that bloom, Merlin's bloom. pants speak in Mr. Bill's voice. <laughs> oh, no, Mr. Hand. <laughs> oh, boy, I really needed a cough button for this episode. Did you? <clears throat> well, I don't know. Did it seem like I was coughing and clearing my throat more or, or a normal amount? Sound hail and hearty to me. See that's, that that's a you you may be you may have like um Stockholm syndrome. Oh really? I I've been in the closet so long I'm starting to like it. Do you really know other podcasters that use cough buttons? Is that a normal thing? People people write me all the time and send me links to cough buttons as though I'm gonna, as though I take advice from people. <clears throat> I will um I will tell you something okay. that may shock and surprise you. Um it is, it, is typical, it is typical for someone who is doing any kind of broadcasting to have something called a cough button, which comes from the, they still have this on radio, and you can still it comes catch it. comes from the it. French café. Called Coffier Bouton, yep, from like a, like a land bouton. Uh, and mm-hmm. so you, uh, in radio, you hit that button when you have to cough, and you don't have to say excuse me or something, you don't cough on the air. Most podcasters will try not to make a noise with their mouth on the air. And then, you know, and so you use a cough button. John doesn't use a cough button. I mute occasionally, but are you ready to hear this? Shock and surprise? Yes. A lot of people out there uh, keep the mute button on during the entire time of their recording and just unmute long enough to say the thing they wanted to say, kind of like a walkie-talkie. How do... Did I just blow your mind? Yeah. How do their fans hear them breathing and wheezing and, uh, well, in, in particular, chuckling and laughing and snorting? Given the current technology, I'm going to say they don't. I, it doesn't appeal to me at all. <clears throat> but I know this because I've recorded with people where we would be like, but, uh, you know, like you'll hear them just like coming in because they didn't hit the button fast enough. Mm-hmm. Isn't that, can you imagine living like that? No, no, no. It seems to me like uh, like some kind of some kind of tyranny, like in uh, trying not to let. Maybe they're mouth breathers, but you know what? I'm a mouth breather. Yeah, well, I mean, that's you are who you are. You're just as God made you. I'm just as God made me, sir. <laughs> I feel I feel like this just an old fruit. <laughs> I feel like. Um, <laughs> That, that's one of the reasons that, uh, that people listen. But then I, all the time, you know what it is, Merlin? All the time I look at these, um, I look at these uh, podcast award ceremonies. Oh, Jesus. Where, where everybody shows up in their blue tuxedos and they walk down the magic carpet and they get the podcasty, like the award of podcasty, whatever that is, yeah. a set of gold-plated headphones. And uh, or you know when people go on Facebook and they're like, "Tell me what your favorite podcast is," and I'm like, "Here we go," and I read down forty responses, and it's all like Mark Maron serial, yeah. And I'm like, "That's why know Roderick to. on the line." Oh come on! And it may be. Do you really think that? The, yeah, because <laughs> it, you know because I feel like our podcast, yeah. our award-winning podcast, which has never won any awards. Oh, don't give us any awards, please. But no, no, I want awards. You, you want awards, okay? Can, can we awards, win awards just for your part of the podcast? I want the yeah. I, I want. I Nothing want makes me phony. sadder than the idea of a podcast award. It's just really so, so depressing. Oh my god, I, who are you going to brag to about winning a podcast award? I, you, know you know what? Know. I talked about myself for an hour and I got a ribbon. 
the thing is, I, yeah, I want a white ribbon for this. Uh, I, I, uh, I all the time describe uh, our podcast as the award-winning uh, Roderick on the Line, and without fail, every single time I do it, somebody's like, "What award did you win?" <laughs> and I'm, and then I'm left saying, "Well, I mean, I'm." I gotta I'm, get back I'm, to this crossword. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding when I say award-winning, <clears throat> but there's yeah. a little part of me that dies. And what I want to be invited to is the Australian Podcast Awards. Hmm. You know, like I don't want to win a headphony. I want to win a, win a, a, a trousery or whatever they say down there. Is headphony like a thing? Is that really an award? That's a really funny if you just made that up. Uh, well, it's just like a little set of gold headphones. But oh, that'd one be of awesome. Them, only one of them is touching the bass, right? It's like they're, they're a little bit off center. So the other headphone is kind of sticking up in the air and uh. it's just like they're they're a little bit, and but it's like a gold base, and they're kind of balanced. Um, headphony, the headphonies. That's pretty good. So you want to go I to Australia like, and get one of those? I want to go. I want to go to Australia and be and and have it be one of those things like when Nirvana or Jimi Hendrix went to England. Oh sure. Where it's like nobody in our own country understands us, but in Australia, mm-hmm. we won a headphony three years in a row. And so then when I tell people on my award-winning podcast, Roderick on the Line, and they say, what award did you ever win? I can say, I got three headphones. Hmm. Uh, and that would validate it's me a, in good, a certain good way. good feeling. <laughs> you know, I never went to Harvard. I never mm-hmm. won an Emmy. You're, you're barely silver, uh, uh, silver yeah, status. I'm fucking silver medallion. I got, a wh- I got white ribbons mm-hmm. in a box because I'm too proud of them to throw them away, but too ashamed of them to show anybody. <laughs> That's perfect. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these? Yeah, I just, let's move on to something else. Oh, you found my box of white ribbons. Uh, well, yeah, I'm just waiting to get enough of those to do a collage. It's like it's like collecting it's like collecting very kindly worded breakup letters. <laughs> oh, I have this those. This one's very polite. Have you ever heard, have you ever seen the cover art for the first Long Winter's record? I sure have, John. Those, you are a world class bullshitter. <laughs> that's just the selection of not very polite breakup letters. Oh, those are pretty good. Yeah. So yeah, what is it? Is it too much to ask? Yeah, it I mean, is. It really, know, it's absolutely too much to ask. It's too much to ask, isn't it? Because we don't appeal to, we don't appeal to the people that go to the DMV. Yeah, or we other appeal, people. Yeah, we we appeal just to the people that have diamond, platinum, military with kids status. Uh, I just feel like it's so unseemly to ask people for things. Uh, I don't like asking for things. And oh, and even if I, I got what I asked for in that case, would I be any happier or better at what I do? And no, I wouldn't. I would feel like a dingus. And let me usually, tell you. Go ahead. Let me ask you. Yeah. If you, if you, at this, if you actually got a headphony now. <laughs> I still don't know if that's a thing. If somebody went to the trouble to, in, to make a headphony and, and not just make a headphony, but actually to establish an award ceremony oh, okay. in, order to, in order to award headphonies. It's named, it was then, named because it looks like, uh, it looks like somebody's uncle headphony. That's why they call it that. Yeah, and then you got one. Yeah. Wouldn't you be a little proud? Wouldn't you display that on the mantle, even yeah. though you never go into your living room? Nope. You would not? I would not. I would not. Would you put it in a box? I'd have to move would a marble you, figure. W- would you polish <laughs> it with a fox? Uh, I, I would eat it with some locks. Uh-huh. Well, or wait a minute. You have an some socks? So it would be up there with uh, it would be up there with Naked no, Blue would, Girl n- and Naked Blue uh, Girl has to be there. I would Force. Ref- I would refuse it. I would I would Marlon Brando that shit. Whoa. Yeah, I would. I would. You would say because of the plight of the Native American, you are not going to accept this headphony? I wouldn't even show up. I just sent her to pick up the not not pick up the headphony. Hmm. 
wonder if she's still alive. That'd be pretty cool. It'd be pretty cool. If, you know what? Can I just say if that lady is alive or someone who looks like her, you should be able to hire a, a Native American to refuse awards for you. And like there would be different ones where it'd be like porn actors. They'd become like fairly well-known inside of like a small, you go, ooh, I think that's the one Matt Damon used. Oh man, she's awesome. I would like to have Andy Sprinkle, uh, not because I, I will not refuse an award because, you know, every day I, I look up at my mantle, which is covered with little dolls of all the presidents of the United States mm-hmm. and some and various models of the airplanes that my father flew and a pair of uh, uh, old snowshoes and some varnays artfully displayed. And what's missing is some kind of some kind of Emmy, Tony, and an, an industry Oscar. acknowledgement of your important work. Something and from if was, your peers. And what I do have is best is tweet of the year for 2010. Wow, as, amazing! As as issued by Seattle Weekly, a newspaper where I had a column at the time. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? No, no, no. Best. <laughs> this is something you year. allow in your home. Tweet of the year. Well, no, it's because it's a hideous thing. <laughs> oh my god. I would never display it, but I can't throw it away because it's like a white ribbon. It's like a hilarious white ribbon. It's a great white ribbon. Tweet of the year for 2010. Third runner-up for Grandpa of the Year. <laughs> when when the Seattle Weekly was still trying to grok what tweeting was. Yeah. And they were like, you know what? John Roderick tweets. He was a very prominent Seattle tweeter. He has 6,000 Twitter followers. Nice. Uh, but So I have a little space cleared on my mantle for, for a headphone award, and it never arrives. Because it doesn't exist. That's a shame, John. Well, I think it's it's very healthy that you've let people know that that's something you'd like to have is a, a made up award from your peers for a podcast you do an hour a week. That that's that would be, I mean, for the lifetime of service, really, that you've been yeah, doing. Yeah. No, the, no. live your your as they say in the community, the, your lived experience as John Roderick and bringing that to people uh, at such a, a small scale. It's the equivalent for me of having a. It's the equivalent of uh, of being a good uh, brain surgeon or a good footballer using those big muscles. Well, the, it's the it's it's the axis of challenge and skill. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge every week to talk to you. I can't spell cough without off. But I have a lot of skill at it, and I'm you know I've got a dot do, way do way out there. Do you? <laughs> Don't you think? Oh no, you're fantastic. <laughs> Don't you think? How many people can do what I do? Gosh, now I know it's it's. <clears throat> I just now as I sit here, I, it's it's an unbelievable. You've been overlooked. See? You're like Scorsese. You're like the Scorsese of uh, of talking about raccoons. Well, and think about Scorsese. What has he done lately? Uh, lots of stuff. He's still really good. <laughs> Are you sure? You didn't like Wolf of Wall Street? Uh, I mean, I'm the saying, scene- you get to his age and still be putting shit out that like doesn't suck. I'm just saying the scene where he t- where he uh, took all the drugs and he drove his Lamborghini home, and then it turned out that he didn't actually. Shut up! Spoiler! Spoiler! <laughs> who and the who listening to our program hasn't seen the Wolf of Wall Street? It turns out that John Nash was Tyler Durden all along. Oh, wait. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I don't want somebody to just make me a fucking headphony and send it to me as some kind of gag. You just made it up, right? I Yeah, I want, okay. I want there to actually be an award ceremony in Australia and New Zealand and Zach. Uh, let's I see. So it's gotta, if it's going to be like uh, the American Association for, what is it, Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, you need some kind of a phony baloney acronym for this, right? Right. Paul Allen, the Hollywood an Foreign award. Press Association, that okay. kind of thing. You need yeah. a name. Paul Allen invented an award, and every year he gives it to some uh, aging rock star, and they always come. Yeah. And he gives it to him, and it's just a nothing. It's just a thing that he is he's rich enough to make. Uh, the why why is there not you know Australian for one? Kind of hung up on the Australia part. Is there, are you, are you do you like spiders or something? Like why no. you want to go to Australia? Well, I'm just looking for a free ticket to Australia. The, oh yeah, well you know with your status, Australian. 
uh, oral, uh, oral, oral award group awards association association. So I'm gonna have to workshop this. No, no, no. I feel like the problem is I don't have a reason to go to Australia. I Mm -hmm. want desperately to go to Australia, but I don't have a reason. Nobody's invited me. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just go down there and walk around like some dingo. Got to plan the trip. Yeah. Well, it's not. I don't want to plan. I don't want to go there with a plan. I want. I want. Why does not simply walk into Australia, John? That's the thing. I'm not a tourist. No. I'm not on a walkabout. No. I want to go there as a professional person to accept an award that I invented. Yes. And and that is is that too much to ask? No. 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 no I feel like that's a that's a that is some normal too, ass shit. It's not too much to ask. The thing is, that an organization <laughs> be created to make an award that someone can give to you in Australia. That is right. not too much for anyone to ask. No, no, no. We are pioneering podcasting. It's just right? on we're, the cusp. We're still in early days here, and nobody knows what it is. So why not just make it what we want? That's right. And all you need is other people to care. All all you need is people to. Understand that as a podcast pioneer, you can establish certain parameters. Oh, so you're a pioneer now. Podcast pioneer. Podcast pi- oh, you should get the special, the special, the uh, the special. Uh, what's it called? The the phony. You should get the, the 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 special phony. The first year, it's like the Irving Thalberg of podcasts. You get the podcast pioneer award. You've had one for like what, like four or five years now. You don't think you don't think uh, that we're podcast pioneers because we weren't in that first. Four hours of podcasting. You don't know you what were. I think. This is you the were. only thing I do that you listen to. I've talked about this a lot. I think we're in extremely early days. I think yeah. we're in ridiculously early days. Yeah, yeah, we're we're the people that were going across the Oregon Trail in 1850. It still takes the New York Times about two months to forget podcasts exist before <laughs> announcing that they've arrived. So Have you heard about this thing? It's called a podcast. It's got to be quite the thing. Uh, apparently, <laughs> this audio is available on demand, and the piano goes like this. Tong. Tong, the the headphony awards, right? Griffin McElroy is going to get one because as soon as he gets, as soon as he gets wise to this, Griffin McElroy, as soon as he gets hip to it, he's going to say that he deserves one. So he's like a podcast inventor, Griffin McElroy. Griffin McElroy, yeah, that's a an awesome name. Not not inventor, but he's a pioneer, Griffin right? McElroy. Jesse Thorne should have like a whole I've met, wall. I've met, of them. I've met Jesse Thorne. Yeah, he should have a wall. Okay, of Griffin them. McElroy is on a podcast called My Brother, My Brother and Me. He's one of the brothers. Okay, or maybe he's the me. They're, they're also, I'm going to guess, Mikel, uh, McElroy's. Uh, the other two are also McElroy's because okay. they're brothers. It's story story checks out. Typically when brothers get married, they don't change their name, although they might add a hyphenated other name. Right, and they have to decide, will the Judaism come through the mother? Precisely. So much I, of the Judaism comes out of the father. I, it's true. Come on, I, throw me a bone. That was <laughs> pretty on. good. Oh, shit. My bell was, my bell was, uh, was deactivated. No, uh, here. Okay, perfect. Listen, <laughs> I gotta go. I don't want to make I don't want to make you uncomfortable. You're not making me uncomfortable. I'm more than happy to be there. At least, like uh, maybe a holograph of me could be there when you accept your very brave award. So I walk on stage. <laughs> I walk on stage. Thunderous applause yeah. from Australians who we all we all know clap hard. Oh, I don't know. I've been in New Zealand and I could not get any reaction from the audience. See, New Zealands are the New Zealands are the Canadians of Australia. Mm, boy, but they love that. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, oh no, oh, absolutely. Hey, there's nothing wrong with being the Canadians. <laughs> what are you going to do? Throw a what, sheep at me? <laughs> what's your problem? Yeah. That was a little bit of anti Oh, you know what? Slogan. That was that was North American normative. That's right. So the, so New Zealand is the Canada of Australia. Canada's kind of like America's toupee. But Aust- Think oh, about it. Well, you know what? I'm not going to get letters this time. That's going to be you. I you I love what? Canada so much more than you and everybody knows it. What? 
Have you ever been to Edmonton? Ah, Have you ever been to Moose Jaw? Oh, God, no. here we go. Let's play the John Knows Names of Places game. Yes, yep. I've been to all of them, John. No, I can tell have. you where to go to get a white ribbon in all of them. No, no, no. I've been to Vancouver and I've been to uh, Toronto. Yeah, right. Well, and so a lot of people so like I'm not qualified you. to say that I like Canadians. A lot of people like you think that that's all that there is to Canada. I assume that's all there is. It doesn't seem like a very big country. It's the toupee of America. Oh, my God. I just meant geographically. You don't want to know what Mexico is, am I right? Up here. You could you could you could say that Canada was the whipped cream on the top of America. That seems a little bit. <laughs> so you're walking up on the stage. There's a hologram of me. There's <laughs> kind a of herky jerky. Applause. I'm in a blue. I'm in a uh, midnight blue tuxedo, mm-hmm. and then something. Good job, Dad. My you know what? I'll send my pants. My pants will be there. Good job, John. I love you. Oh, dear. 